Hello and welcome to Roundtable. The Taliban's takeover in Afghanistan in August led to the chaotic withdrawal of US-European coalition forces. And that's now left Western leaders questioning how they will engage with the new rulers. While some leaders, such as those in China and Russia, have embraced the new government in Afghanistan, top EU diplomats stress that they will only have what they call operational engagement and will not recognize the Taliban officially. What does this mean for future diplomatic relations? Very good to have your company. I'm David Foster. Respect for women's rights, media freedom, evacuation of foreign nationals and access for the whole population to humanitarian aid. These are some of the conditions the European Union has laid down in order to engage properly with the Taliban. But will the new government in Afghanistan agree to those conditions? According to the European Union's foreign policy chief, Joseph Burrell, the EU has no choice but to engage with the Taliban and maintain a diplomatic presence in Kabul. The EU is setting conditions, though, on its level of engagement with the Taliban, including the protection of human rights. Burrell argues maybe it is a pure oxymoron to talk about human rights, but this is what we have to ask them. To have any chance of influencing events, we have no other option but to engage with the Taliban. Engaging means talking, discussing and agreeing when possible. The new Afghan rulers say they will address concerns such as women in government once the world recognises them. How much influence do European nations have over the Taliban? Can they hold Afghanistan's new administration to account? Well, allow me to welcome to the roundtable General Simon Mayle, formerly Deputy UK Defence Chief, responsible for operational policy in Afghanistan and the author of the book Soldier in the Sand. We go to Dublin, where we see Michael Semple from Queen's University of Belfast, who lived and worked in Afghanistan during the Taliban's first tenure in power. And we welcome back to the roundtable Jamie Shea, former Deputy Assistant Secretary General at NATO. Michael, I'm going to come to you first of all because you were there during, as we said, the first time the Taliban were in power. Um, you were kicked out by President Karzai, I think, round about 2007 for unauthorised peacemaking with the Taliban. You know them as well as anybody does. Do you think they could change from the group that we once knew? In about 27 years since the movement was founded, they've been pretty constant in terms of their ideology and their approach. The, uh, and seeing the Taliban come back into power in Kabul 20 years after they were kicked out is absolutely remarkable how they haven't changed. They, <laughs> they, it's the brand that doesn't change. Many of them are the same old men that we dealt with two decades ago. Some of them are their sons. Some of them are men who weren't even born the last time the Taliban were in power, but they've adopted the same ideology, the same culture, the same approach. The Taliban have not changed in 27 years. Why would they change now? Not even in not terms even. of putting on different clothing, pretending that they've changed so that they can get the sort of international deals that they want and perhaps need? Well, I mean, that's about sort of changing what's written on the box, not changing what's inside the box. Uh, they've, got, they've got good at 
um, spinning stories and dealing with Western diplomats and receiving visitors and, you know, and making commitments. I mean, frankly, they did that in the 90s as well. At that stage, we realized that there was a difference between what they said and what they, uh, and what they did. I mean, perhaps that gap has grown a bit wider. Um, but I wouldn't pay too much uh, attention to their public statements. Their actions are the same as they were 20 years ago. Which leads us, General, to, to wonder whether, in fact, it is possible to engage with the Taliban, other than for any other reason, that um, they effectively won the war the West lost and the West has to deal with them on their terms. Well, I think that's, 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 that's the reality. When uh, the decision was made to negotiate directly with the Taliban without bringing the Afghan government in, uh, I think we all knew this was going to probably end in tears. And then when the Americans set a firm deadline for leaving, you were going to end up almost inevitably with the Taliban, who conducted an extremely effective information operations campaign in and around the deadline for the withdrawal. Um, I would only say Michael knows this far better than I do, but undoubtedly they've inherited a country that is markedly different. I mean, half the population of the Taliban were not even born when... Uh, half the population of Afghanistan not even born when the Taliban uh, were thrown out in 2001, somewhere around that. And, of course, when we talk about women's rights, when always sort of says you know, every woman in Afghanistan is the sister, daughter, wife, mother of an Afghan. And so they can't help but have to be slightly pushed by that. And there is the other side, of course, that they are trying to parlay off humanitarian aid and a degree of responsible government for humanitarian aid because, you know, you break it, you own it. They are now in, in charge. Uh, but that will leave them open, of course, to being uh, accused of selling out to the international community exactly what they accused Karzai and Ashraf Ghani of doing. Well, break it, you own it. That's something we'll come to a little bit later in the programme with a quote from uh, the current governor of Helmand province. But, but, Jamie, is that your assessment, too, that um, everything has to be done on the Taliban's terms? I would say, apart from the fact that they need money, the country's broke. Well, yes, I mean, the, the international community, NATO, has two key interests at the moment. The first one, of course, is getting it, the message clear to the Taliban that if they get into cahoots again with uh, terrorist organisations, Al-Qaeda, uh, ISIS, uh, then there will be a, a very firm reaction. Um, they saw last time that when they did that, uh, the United States intervened and took the Taliban down. And so, presumably, they don't want to commit suicide the second time. And so that but Jamie, will be it, delivered. But, in the end, it turned out not to be suicide, did it? It turned out to be a sort of a 20-year, rather nasty, infectious wound, and they've come back. Well, it, it, indeed, and that begs the question, of course, if we look at the history of whether the United States and the UK should have gone into Iraq in 2003 and allowed the Taliban yeah. to research uh, at a time when we, we had them on the run. But I think significantly... But just to finish on this, I think... Mm. First of all, there is that uh, a particular angle. We'll have to wait and see how it develops. For the time being, the question of ISIS seems to be answered affirmatively. Last night, there was an operation by the Taliban against an ISIS cell in North Kabul, where it's claimed several ISIS fighters were killed. The second interest, David, though, is the humanitarian one. You mentioned that already. Uh, clearly, in the West, there is always the imperative not to let people die or not to let people starve. And the situation, as the UN has warned us, is dire, with 14 million Afghans uh, uh, in danger of starvation. But the Europeans have also got the vested interest in not having millions of Afghans leaving mm. the country, surging back through Turkey into Europe and causing the kind of yeah. migration crisis, all of the destabilisation that we experience back in 2015. Well, this is where I want to go now. And Michael, in terms of negotiating, the European Union, well, Europe as, as a whole, 
needs to avoid what Jamie's just suggested, the, a massive refugee crisis. It will need to deal with the Taliban. How does it go about that? The European Union has actually adopted quite an interesting position because their high representative has said that we still believe that a broad-based Afghan government inclusive political system is a sustainable end state. And so, although the EU has said it's going to talk with the Taliban, it's not accepting the, you know, what we see in Kabul now as sort of like the end of the story. And that's a rather sensible position because it, it, because it doesn't look to me as if it is sustainable. They, um, I mean, the, you know, the Taliban, you know, conducted a very, you know, very effective campaign, got themselves into power, but they don't have the means to stay in power unless somebody props them up. So I think that the, what the EU will do will be try and talk with them on pragmatic terms. Um, uh, they may look for the look for the Taliban to, um, you know, to uh, sign up to some principles which the Taliban probably won't sign up to. Uh, but at the same time, uh, I think we will see the emergence of like the rest of Afghanistan, those who are um, will be lining up to try and um, you know, be be part of. A, a, a new broad-based government, basically ready to take over from the Taliban when this well, regime too. Uh, yeah. Well, well, yeah, please do so. Well, I always remember somebody say, saying to somebody, you know, the bad news is the Taliban are in charge. The worst news will be the Taliban aren't in charge, because the horrors of the last Taliban control of Kabul was, of course, a civil war in the country, horribly destabilizing, masses of casualties, etc. And so, in some ways, you know, talking about migration talking about trying to get a broad-based government, we have to take the Taliban seriously enough to support them because what's the alternative? There is no government in waiting. They've all left the country. They've taken with them a huge amount of, dare I say, the best educated, the people who can run things. And, and so money. our problem would be, yes, bad to have the Taliban. They will challenge all sorts of things. But if the Taliban can't produce government and we fall into some sort of anarchy again, even worse, I would argue, for the people of Afghanistan. Well, so, so I'm seeing a position being postulated here where um, the West tries to prop up the Taliban, which it tried to keep out of power for years, because, as you say, the alternative is far worse. It would be warlords coming back in again, vested interest groups, mercenaries coming into the country. The warlords were already incredibly powerful. When the Taliban recaptured Kabul on the 15th of August, there was a sense that West has lost, Russia and China have won. Uh, and uh, they're going to sort of rush to fill in the vacuum uh, and have the sort of influence that we've forfeited. But what, what I'm seeing is more interesting than that, which is that you know, Russia clearly fears uh, the blowback of terrorism into Central Asia. It sent troops to Tajikistan, to Uzbekistan. The Russians have even said to the, uh, the chief of defense of the United States that they might be willing to allow US forces to come back to a Russian base in Tajikistan in order to conduct strikes against terrorist groups. China uh, has been more reserved also, only offering $30 million of immediate aid, not rushing in to invest and replace the West, uh, uh, financing 75% of the government budget, which is what we were doing uh, under the previous uh, 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 regime. So China and Russia are being cautious. Even Pakistan has not yet surprisingly recognised the Taliban. Yeah, but Michael, you, you were saying the Taliban haven't changed at all. What Jamie's suggesting, and what we're hearing at this table, is that they need to be more pragmatic because they haven't had that massive onrush of, of international friends saying, listen, we want to be your partners. Uh, and frankly, if the West allows itself to get into the position of propping up the Taliban, uh, it will be 
encouraging the Taliban not to be pragmatic. It will actually allow the Taliban to continue their confrontation with the Afghan population. I mean, in a way which is sort of like repeating some of the mistakes that we um, that we made uh, prior to the collapse of the republic. And then if the uh, if the republic was vulnerable to collapse uh, at the hands of the Taliban, it was partly because Western support uh, allowed the you know, the leadership to continue without making necessary reforms. Uh, it would be dreadful if we were to repeat the mistake in dealing with the Taliban. I do also think that um, uh, what we're looking at now with sort of the field completely dominated by the, the Taliban is a temporary phase, which is likely to look different in the weeks ahead. Because it's true that some perhaps, you know, westernized Afghans who really didn't have a full stake in the country and they're, you know, they're sort of they'd, they develop their ties with the US or Europe. Yeah, maybe they've gone for good. But I mean, no significant Afghan political figure has gone over to the Taliban. Not even any significant military figure has gone over to the Taliban. They've all, you know, they've all either all hiding in country or they're regrouping inside the regional countries. You look at Afghanistan in two months' time, it'll look completely different. So putting together a putting together a an engagement strategy based on the idea that the Taliban are the only uh, military and political force in Afghanistan would be very short-sighted and probably a catastrophic mistake. And that's why I think the caution with which the uh, the powers are approaching dealing with the Taliban is actually um, well justified. Well, this programme was supposed to be about how do we deal with the Taliban, but we seem to be getting to the point where it's going to be how do we deal with maybe the Taliban and maybe somebody else who's going to be running Afghanistan. Well, you know, if you've got chaos you know, and, um, and, and war, rise of warlords, factionalism, uh, the Taliban can't control it, ISK begin to attack, more foreign fighters are drawn in. That's why there is a, there is a community of interest, which Jamie's referred to, where all of us, very few of us, have got any vested interest, be it Iran, be it China, be it India, be it Pakistan, of, of Afghanistan falling apart. I absolutely understand Michael's uh, dislike of, I, I don't say propping up the Taliban, but trying to, to an extent, at least test their actions rather than their words, withholding recognition, because we're going into winter. Again, Michael will know the conditions there far better than I do, where we're going to have to start distributing Aid and if aid is being distributed in a country that's fallen into anarchy, that will be yeah. a disaster. So to an extent, we've got no option but to deal with what we've got and hope to use that as leverage. And does the West not need chaos in Afghanistan simply because it doesn't want another war, or are there other factors at play here? For the time being, there are two strategies. Strategy number one is a strategy of trying to go back to civil war in Afghanistan by a for example, promoting the interests of uh, uh, Ahmed Massoud and uh, those people who don't recognize the regime. But they're not in the country at the moment. They're up in Tajikistan. They don't occupy the Panjshir Valley. They hmm. don't have a, a northern alliance in the way that the previous... But I suppose... Sorry to interrupt, Jamie. But so I, that's going to be a risky strategy. What, I, what I'm wondering, if I, if I may interject yeah. at this point, is what interests would the West want to get out of this if it wasn't just simply to avoid another conflict? What does it want to use Afghanistan for? And therefore, where would it position itself when it comes to any kind of deal? Well, no, no, three. Again, there's the terrorist thing, which is real, because yeah. we saw that in the past. There's the humanitarian regime thing is real. But there's also the moral sense that we were there for 20 years. We spent, uh, according to the, the, uh, President Biden, at least the US, $4 trillion. 
we developed civil society. A lot of that civil society is now in exile. And somehow we've got, you know, as a moral duty to preserve both in Afghanistan, in Afghanistan and outside Afghanistan, those elements of civil society so that when the political circumstances change, they're able to go back and run the country. So can I, can I read this? Um, this is from the current uh, new Taliban governor of Helmand mm -hmm. province. He f was fighting the British mostly out there. He said, all these foreign countries invaded and killed our women and our children and our old people and destroyed everything. Now the international community should help us with humanitarian aid and focus on developing education, business and trade. He's saying it's time for payback. Jamie suggested there's a moral duty to do something like that. Do you really think the West thinks that way, that actually we've screwed this up, we've got to help them now? Or is it, this is what I'm pushing at, is it really out after something else? Well, I think it is. I, I think absolutely we don't want um, foreign fighters there. I mean, we've got to just remember just how strong the foreign fighter base was within the Taliban, which are fundamentally, as we know, a push to national movement. They haven't yet started acting as a sort of vacuum into which other people come. There's undoubtedly the migration issue that's absolutely hugely on people's minds. So terrorism mind. and migration, these are the two terrorism headlines so far, yeah. A degree of morality, I do accept. A degree, I had to say earlier on, as I said, 25% you know, of the country are women under the age of 25. You know, this is a very different country. And as in many parts of the Middle East, ambitious, simply not going to go back. Power of social media still. But equally, one's got to recognise that Afghanistan is a very socially conservative country, very patriarchal, very religiously pious. And, and, you know, the Taliban are not an invading army. They are indigenous. Al-Qaeda was an invading, you know, incubus that came in on the back of it. But a lot of these people are playing with the grain of the country. Hence why, in many ways, at the end of the day, you know, the Afghan army sort of collapsed. Many people were not prepared to pick up arms and fight them. It was a brilliant information operations campaign combined with terror, very effective. We've seen it before in other parts of the world, Mosul, when ISIS took Mosul in 2014. So in some ways, we've got to be really careful about sort of this idea that everybody loathes the Taliban. To an extent, as I say, pragmatically, we've got some interests that can be served at the moment by not recognising them. But I'd love actually, to give you the floor again, Jamie, but I'm but, but, you know, But actually trying to look for those areas where we have equal pragmatists among the Taliban. Well aware of the fact that Michael's been sitting there very patiently for a little while, and I want to ask you about negotiations, because, as I say, uh, you were kicked out for unauthorised peacemaking by Hamid Karzai in 2007. You know a little bit about making deals. Um, do you think deals are already being made, perhaps through the auspices of the un back channels, not necessarily through uh, front-facing countries? Uh, we've already had the first round of contacts between the, the UN uh, and the Taliban leadership. And there what we see is you know, and almost like another round of platitudes, which is the Taliban replaying what they said in Doha for the past three years, uh, promising that they will behave better, that they will they respect the population, that they want to have good dealings with the international community, and giving no solid evidence they're actually prepared to change anything. Uh, and partly this is because you know, they've learned over the past three years, you know, make your demand, stick to your demands, the other side will eventually capitulate. Um, and, you know, and you know, that's the, the, the playbook which they're operating again. I suppose I'd, I'd almost a question to Michael that, you know, these people are in control of a country. They are aware that the, they're in the spotlight of the international community. They do need a degree of support. They're looking for legitimacy 
in their own country. Um, as Michael did point out, many of these people are of a younger generation. They're not immune to exile. So you've got to ask, what, what does Michael think they ultimately want? Do they want to bring in, I, I get a fundamentalist, Sharia-driven state, but equally they want one in which the population to an extent are going with them. And to do that, well, they're going to have to bring well, in law and order, to this, stability. Which leads to me to this one, which is how much tolerance is the West going to give yeah. the Taliban or whoever it happens to be who, who might follow them when it comes to saying you have to include women in government, you have to uh, respect the rights of these pe people up here? Um, or is that just virtue signalling from the West that knows it has to do with it? I think there's a difference, David, between sort of humanitarian aid, which we must give, no matter what the regime, we don't want to allow people to die of starvation or of disease. Uh, Afghanistan has also been deeply affected by climate change, drought, which is on everybody's mind at the moment. Over 500,000 internal refugees have been caused this year alone, not through conflict, but through drought. So humanitarian aid provided that, of course. Uh, the UN is on the ground, able to dispense that aid. Uh, there's no corruption on behalf of the government, which is unfortunately what we had with the previous government, and we're able to deliver that aid. But there's a big difference between that and the sort of things that you're talking about, which is giving the Taliban grants and aid for infrastructure, mm. for governance, and all of those things. And there, I believe, the conditionality, which uh, Macron was talking about, has to be very, very strict. But it's very important that the G20 at this upcoming meeting in Rome in just 10 days' time uh, actually agrees on, on those criteria and stick to those criteria uh, because well, that I'll just is read a way them of out very, the very, very quickly. Humanitarian operations, uh, don't go soft on terrorist groups and a respect for human rights and dignity for, and, for and women. And continue to engage with civil society, like with Iran, like with Syria, because although there's no immediate prospect that they're going to come back in, into power anytime soon, we spent a lot of time and investment in nurturing those elements. They're there. We referred to them right at the very, very beginning. Think of the Baltic states, where we uh, helped uh, all of the Balts in exile for 40 years, never knowing when they could go back to form the government. But when Soviet power collapsed, they went back and were able to rebuild the country very, very quickly. And I think that's the kind of image, to, uh, paradigm that we have to build. So, 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 Michael, do you think the West has to tolerate the Taliban? Because under uh, Hamid Karzai, who, who threw you out, under Ashraf Ghani, uh, so many more violations were made other than perhaps human rights violations. The country was looted. And, and these people were as much criminal as, as those that perhaps have replaced them. The numerous flaws of the system that was propped up by the West, which ultimately led to its collapse rather than any popularity of the Taliban. But I mean, that's, you know, by the by. The by. I think the, the West will have to tolerate the Taliban because they're there. Mm -hmm. uh, but in terms of the you know, engagement now, yes, I, you know, I agree that the engagement should, for now should be limited to the humanitarian assistance. Uh, I think that Every criterion that you uh, that you list, sort of like after uh, you know, after allowing humanitarian operations, will be a criterion that the Taliban will fail to uh, to live up to. So it has to be uh, conditional. What kind of pressure can you put on the Taliban, though, if humanitarian aid is is a given? Well, uh, with, as with I say, no it's very difficult. You know, what what is what is their vision of Afghanistan? We've got a bit of an idea. We saw it, but there is a new generation now. The Taliban are a very broad spectrum, as we find with all these revolutionary organizations. One of their problems will be the fundamentalists will break away from the moderates, the prag pragmatists, if there are any, because they'll want to keep their ideological purity. And of course, the Taliban, from their point of view, will find it difficult to reach out to the international community. Otherwise, they'll leave themselves open to accusations of illegitimacy 
which undoubtedly Al Qaeda, IS, whatever will 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 play on. So it, it's a it's a difficult one to do. You can you can ostracize them, or you can engage them. Both of them, to my mind, carry a degree of risk in terms of leading to anarchy. Can I just throw a quick end point to you, Jamie? Because we've only got about a minute left. When you were at NATO and um, we were talking about this all those years ago, did you ever imagine that two decades down the line? Uh, this situation would ever have cropped up? No, I, I, I felt at the time that we would reach a stalemate whereby the Taliban movement, the conservative forces, deeply religious forces, would dominate the countryside, but that we, NATO, would be able with the Afghan, the government, to construct a, a military force, a system of government, which would keep the cities, rather like in medieval Europe, uh, as bastions of, of, of tolerance where liberals could conglomerate, and we would sort of live with that kind of mixed uh, society, mixed economy, mixed culture uh, for a period of time. And uh, unfortunately, uh, that was the uh, vision that collapsed. But I will say one thing. The, the Taliban have to govern, even, even totalitarian dictatorial authoritarian governments have to govern, you know, just like liberal ones do. They've got 40 million people to govern. Uh, and uh, the objective factors, ultimately, the economy, the lack of loans, the lack of outside cooperation is going to tell. The only the two countries which the Taliban would have looked to help them, Pakistan and Iran, are both totally bankrupt. They've got no money at all. The countries with the money are taking a relatively reserved view. So let's wait for the objective factors, ultimately, six months, a year, down the road, uh, to start... Maybe uh, not 20. Not 20. OK, listen, I, we, we've finished. We've, we're out of time, and it's gone oh so very, very quickly. Thank you very much indeed, Simon, Jamie, Michael. Thank you very much indeed uh, for your contribution from Dublin. And, of course, to be able to govern, the Taliban not only needs money, it needs experts, and most of the experts have fled the country, so where do you get those? It is going to be a very long and complicated process. Uh, well, that's it from me, David Foster, at this roundtable. My thanks to the guests, my thanks to you, wherever you happen to be watching, and we hope to have your company on another occasion. Until then, goodbye. <laughs>